How the State Preserves Itself Once a state has been established, the problem of the ruling group or caste is how to maintain their rule. While force is their modus operandi, their basic and long-run problem is ideological. For in order to continue in office, any government, not simply a quote-unquote democratic government, must have the support of the majority of its subjects. This support, it must be noted, need not be active enthusiasm. It may well be passive resignation, as if to an inevitable law of nature. But support, in the sense of acceptance, of some sort it must be. Else the minority of state rulers would eventually be outweighed by the active resistance of the majority of the public. Since predation must be supported out of the surplus of production, it is necessarily true that the class constituting the state, the full-time bureaucracy and nobility, must be a rather small minority in the land, although it may, of course, purchase allies among important groups in the population. Therefore, the chief task of the rulers is always to secure the active or resigned acceptance of the majority of its citizens. For this essential acceptance, the majority must be persuaded by ideology that their government is good, wise, and at least inevitable, and certainly better than other conceivable alternatives. Promoting this ideology among the people is the vital social task of the quote-unquote intellectuals. For the masses of men, do not create their own ideas, or indeed think through these ideas independently. They follow passively the ideas adopted and disseminated by the body of intellectuals. The intellectuals are, therefore, the opinion molders in society. And since it is precisely a molding of opinion that the state most desperately needs, the basis for age-old alliance between the state and the intellectuals becomes clear. It is evident that the state needs the intellectuals. It is not so evident why intellectuals need the state. Put simply, we may state that the intellectual's livelihood in the free market is never too secure. For the intellectual must depend on the values and choices of the masses of his fellow men, and it is precisely characteristic of the masses that they are generally uninterested in intellectual matters. The state, on the other hand, is willing to offer the intellectuals a secure and permanent berth in the state apparatus, and thus a secure income and the panoply of prestige. For the intellectuals will be handsomely rewarded for the important function they perform for the state rulers, of which group they now become a part. A venerable institution is the official or court historian, dedicated to purveying the rulers' views of their own and their predecessors' actions. Murray Rothbard The Anatomy of the State
Howdy everybody, CJ here. Welcome to another dose of Dangerous History. And all I can say is, we have done the impossible, and that makes us mighty. This has been the week that is just wrapping up as I record this episode. This has been my first genuine week as a liberated man. What I mean by that is, this is the week, this week that's just wrapping up as I'm recording this, that I would have been back at work. This would have been the preparatory week where I would have been simultaneously preparing for all my classes that would have started next week. And in addition, I would have been forced to go and sit through all sorts of stupid meetings and possibly quote-unquote professional development seminars and all these sorts of things, which are, you know, 90% of which are just a complete colossal waste of time. And then today, as I'm recording this, it is Friday. Today, I would have spent all day in my office probably working overtime to frantically get everything ready for classes to start on Monday, and the reason for that is not because I was lazy the rest of the week, but because so much of my time during the prior days of the week would have been eaten up sitting through stupid meetings and things rather than cutting me loose to actually, you know, type up my syllabi, set up my online classes, make any, you know, copies of handouts I needed to make, all the other kind of nuts and bolts things that I actually should be doing the week before my classes start. So once again, I want to say deeply thank you to every single individual who has helped me in any way to liberate myself from the albatross of that day job. And, you know, however great or small your contributions have been, I thank you very, very much. And I'm already super excited and energized and way happier and am looking forward to being way more productive on things that I genuinely care about and that I think bring much more value to the world than teaching the same handful of intro level courses over and over and over again to a few hundred students a year, probably 80% of whom don't really want to be there anyway. Once again, I do want to mention that the Indiegogo campaign to liberate me from my day job is actually still running and will run until very early days of September, I believe. And so you are still more than welcome and encouraged to chip in there if you haven't already, both, you know, to help me out as I make this transition to being fully independent, which, you know, it's going to take me probably at least a few months to get this like fully everything, you know, figured out and squared away and whatever. And also, so that you can access any of those perks listed there, depending on how much you are willing and able to contribute. Also, by the way, related to that, any of those of you who have already contributed, if you're wondering, you know, when the perks are going to start being redeemed, well, first off, if you're someone who threw in $50 or anything more than that, I did promise you a free ebook, but obviously that's going to take a long time for me to be able to produce because it's a book I haven't written yet. So, you know, hopefully a year, maybe a little bit less from now, fingers crossed, knock on wood, all that stuff, that'll be ready. I am going to keep, you know, records of everybody's name and email who did contribute 50 or more to the Indiegogo, and I promise when my first book is finished, I will send you a free e-copy of it. But obviously, that particular perk is going to be a while. But as far as the other stuff, you know, the shout outs on episodes and, you know, the, the webinars, the book club, if you threw in 500 or more, 
And then, you know, back and forth with people who threw in enough for me to produce an episode or even a miniseries. All of that stuff, I'm not going to start, you know, really doing until the Indiegogo campaign is fully over. That way I know exactly, you know, who and how many of everybody gets what perks. So expect it's not going to be at the earliest until like mid-September, maybe, that I start doing those things, that I start, you know, doing the webinars and the book club and all that. But, you know, stay tuned. I am, you know, keeping track of everybody and everything through Indiegogo. So have no fear. Uh, you will be getting your perks. Just, you know, wait for the full campaign to be totally done so that I know for sure, because obviously, you know, people might still chip in over the next couple of weeks. And then I know for sure, you know, who I need to send what to as far as invites to webinars and, you know, who I need to contact about, hey, what would you like me to do an episode on now that you've, you know, thrown in that money for me? Also, one more important announcement I want to make is that a whole bunch of people have, uh, in recent weeks, been contacting me, telling me to claim my podcast on Fountain.fm so you can start sending me little bits of crypto or whatever. And I've looked into that and I downloaded the app and everything like that. But here's the thing. Currently, and for the last bunch of years, my podcast has been media hosted on Megaphone through the Recorded History Network, of which I've been a part for those years. And there have been various pluses to that, like they help me get those ads that you hear if you're not a uh, Patreon or Subscribestar supporter getting ad-free episodes of the show. Those ads on there are, you know, I'm not the one out there beating the bushes recruiting those advertisers. The network does that for me. Now, obviously, they take a cut for doing that service. But, you know, when I was doing the Dangerous History podcast as a side gig while also doing a full-time job and trying to be a halfway decent husband and father, it made sense to me to be on the network and let them have their cut of those ads in return for saving me all the hassle of having to, you know, solicit advertisers and deal with all that stuff. Well, now that I'm doing the podcast as my full-time gig, it now is different and it now I think makes sense for me to go back to hosting via one of the podcast media services my own feed that I am in full control of and that way you know whatever advertisements I get from then on I'll get all of the revenue from number one and number two the fountain app I'll be able to do that I can't do the fountain app thing until I remove my podcast from Megaphone through Recorded History and then set up my own feed, which I'll probably be doing through Blueberry, which is who I used to use before I joined Recorded History and I liked them and I was, you know, was happy with them. And honestly, I wouldn't have left them if it hadn't been for the, you know, positives of joining the Recorded History Network that I already mentioned. So anyway, I'm going to be doing that at some point over the next few weeks or so. You know, I've got to take care of the nuts and bolts stuff of setting up a Blueberry account again and setting up the new feed and, you know, putting all my catalog of episodes on it and all that sort of stuff uh, before I can switch it over. But I'm just letting you know about that. So please, please, please do not send me any more emails or social media messages telling me that I need to set things up for Fountain a hundred people have already done that. All you're doing if you do that at this point is just kind of being an annoying pain in the ass. 
No, I'm not complaining about the initial, you know, people who started doing that because you made me aware of an app I wasn't aware of. So, you know, if you were someone who sent me something about that like a couple weeks ago, don't feel bad because, you know, you did actually turn me on to something I wasn't aware of. But, you know, from this point forward, if you hear this recording, please stop doing that for now because I'm aware of it and I'm going to do it, but I have to switch my podcast hosting to an independent feed before I can do that. And that's not a simple, quick, easy thing I can do in a couple minutes. So please don't message me anymore about Fountain.fm. I'm aware of it. And also, please don't send anything to the podcast via Fountain.fm until after I've announced that the feed is, you know, fully repatriated to my own uh, independent media hosting account. Also, on that vein, keep in mind when I switch back over to an independent feed again, that's most likely going to be through Blueberry and not through Megaphone anymore. I'm pretty sure I'll be able to do that seamlessly. And what I mean by that is I'm pretty sure I'll be able to do that in a way that if you're already subscribed to the DHP through, you know, any of the podcatcher apps, whether it's, you know, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever the hell it is. I'm pretty sure I'll be able to do the switch to where it's seamless on your end, to where if you're already subscribed to the DHP, um, when I switch over to the new feed, it'll just, you know, kind of switch it over for you and you may not even be aware if something has happened. No, I'll make an announcement about it once I've done it, of course, um, and I'll let you know, you know, when I'm ready to start receiving crypto bits or whatever uh, through Fountain, but there's the possibility incorrect that I'll be able to do this seamlessly, or maybe I can, but you know, it's always possible I'll screw something up along the way. So keep in mind that at some point over the next few weeks, I'm going to be making this switch. So please, if you like listening to my show and you subscribe to it through the public feed, not through, you know, Patreon or whatever, keep in mind, there's at least the possibility that when I make this switch, you may not be subscribed to the DHP when it's on the new feed. So there's a possibility that you may have to, if that's the case, you know, manually go in there and subscribe to the DHP again. So I just wanted to make you all aware of that. And I'll try to keep you posted uh, as I figure that process out and, you know, start to get things lined up to switch back over. And one more bit of housekeeping uh, related to that. If you're somebody who has some sort of business or project or whatever that you would like to advertise on the DHP once I get it switched over to, you know, my own independent feed, please send me an email and I'll be happy to work with you on that and hopefully we can work out some sort of deal. Particularly if you've got some sort of product or service or whatever that you think would be a good fit for the sorts of people who subscribe to this show. And since if you're listening to this, you already are those sorts of people, I think you know what I'm talking about. And if you are going to email me to inquire about advertising on the show, please, in the email subject line, put something really obvious like advertising or ads on DHP or, you know, something that's really blatant because I'm in kind of an awkward place when it comes to email. My audience and following have grown to the point where it's no longer easy for me to keep up with email in a timely fashion or to, you know, respond to every email I get. But I'm also not quite at the level where I can like, you know, hire a, an assistant just to deal with my email or something like that. So um, 
putting something that's really clear cut in the subject line uh, will help me to spot your email and go like, oh, this is actually something, you know, potentially urgent. This person wants to advertise on the show. very important housekeeping notes out of the way. What is the meat of what I want to talk about in this episode? Well, uh, it was pointed to by the Rothbard quote that I kicked off the show with. And how that relates to a recent news story uh, that came out just over a week ago from when I'm recording this, but I only was tipped off to it a couple of days ago. And when I saw this, it immediately made me furious and contemptuous, and inspired me to do this episode. And the story is that just over a week ago, Biden had a meeting with several prominent historians in the White House where they were giving him uh, some advice and some historical context of the challenges that he's facing, etc., Now, I'm someone who's been saying for years that We'd be better off if more of our leaders really understood history and uh, or at the very least, if they were getting good advice from people who actually really understood history. And so, you know, uh, if you're not familiar with what I mean by honest history, and I'll uh, try to remember to link to an episode I did a long time ago on the topic of honest history, what I mean by, you know, it'd be better if more of our leaders knew history or listened to people who did. I'm talking about honest history as I define it. And I won't belabor that point here because of time. Um, I'll link to that episode I did, I want to say roughly two years ago on honest history. And I'm very proud of that episode, by the way, and um, very much encourage you to listen to it if you're a fan of the show and you've never listened to that one. So, yeah, I would actually be a little bit, you know, at least mildly white-pilled if I heard that a president was bringing in a panel of what I would consider anyway honest historians to give him some advice. But that's, of course, not what happened. Instead, you got a bunch of people who were clearly cherry-picked to tell the president what he already wants to hear, what he already probably believes, if his brain even functions at all at this point, and, you know, basically repeats the CIA, CNN, MSNBC narrative of everything. So it's a classic case of, oh, the president's bringing in experts to give him advice. And, you know, a blue-pilled NPC hears that and is like, oh, that's good, they feel reassured, you know? But... If you're someone who actually understands how expertise and, you know, academic disciplines and things work, you realize, like, you can't just say, oh, here's these experts, let's listen to them, Uh, because experts disagree on lots of stuff. And so if you're bringing in a panel of experts, but they all essentially agree with each other and they all essentially agree with what you already believe and what you already want to do, 
then it's just completely pageantry. You know, it's just completely a uh, photo op. It would be like if Joe Biden brought in Paul Krugman and uh, Paul Krugman advises him to borrow and print and spend more money. It's like, that's what Biden was going to do already. The only value that Krugman provides by, you know, coming in and suggesting he do that is to give the veneer of, quote unquote, expert legitimacy to the policy course that the politician was already going to do. And again, to a blue-pilled NPC, this is great, you know, because then they can just, like, read the New York Times or listen to CNN for two seconds and go, oh, I'm totally informed, I'm so smart. But anyway, I'm going to share with you some excerpts of the Washington Post's coverage of this. And this article was then, I believe, kind of syndicated in a number of, like, Yahoo News and those sorts of things. But this seems to have been the kind of original big establishment coverage of this meeting of Biden with some historians. So the headline of this Washington Post article dated August 10th, 2022 is Historians privately warn Biden that America's democracy is teetering. Now, if you look at the episode title of this episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, you'll see what I consider an honest headline for this story. A little bit different from the WAPOs. The subheadline is, When Biden met with historians last week at the White House, they compared the threat facing America to the pre-Civil War era and to pro-fascist movements before World War II. This article is written by Michael Scherer, Ashley Parker, and Tyler Pager. Pager or Pager, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. And I read, quote, President Biden paused last week during one of the busiest stretches of his presidency for a nearly two-hour private history lesson from a group of academics who raised alarms about the dire condition of democracy at home and abroad. End quote. Okay, now first off, does anybody listening to this actually believe that Joe Biden sat through a two-hour seminar by a bunch of establishment historians and was fucking awake the whole time? Like, seriously? The guy can barely stagger through a 15-minute press conference. I mean, he's basically Abraham Simpson only without any of Abe Simpson's redeeming qualities, and he's a completely corrupt psychopath in charge of the world's largest Leviathan state and war machine. So, you know, in my opinion, Grandpa Simpson is uh, infinitely preferable as a human being. But, you know, 19-year-old college students would have a hard time sitting through a two-hour seminar taught by these historians he was talking to. I really don't believe Grandpa Joe was with it. Not that he would have gotten anything of value if he was, because these people were just basically telling him what he wants to hear and what he already believes. Anyway, back to the article, quote, The conversation during a ferocious lightning storm on August 4th unfolded as a sort of Socratic dialogue between the commander-in-chief and a select group of scholars who painted the current moment as among the most perilous in modern history for democratic governance, according to multiple people familiar with the discussions who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe a private meeting. End quote. 
Oh, yeah. I'm sure Socratic dialogue is the proper term to describe uh, the brilliant intellect and dignity of what unfolded. I'm sure that if we could actually watch recordings of this encounter, the first thing would be like, oh, yeah, this is up there with, you know, the greatest philosophical conversations in Western history. Notice, by the way, in that paragraph I just read, it says a select group of scholars. A more accurate description would be a carefully cherry-picked group of scholars. Back to the article. Quote, Comparisons were made to the years before the 1860 election, when Abraham Lincoln warned that a house divided against itself cannot stand, and the lead-up to the 1940 election, when President Franklin D. Roosevelt battled rising domestic sympathy for European fascism and resistance to the United States joining World War II. The diversion was, for Biden, part of a regular effort to use outside experts in private White House meetings to help him work through his approach to multiple crises facing his presidency. End quote. Outside experts. Yeah, these people nominally, you know, work for various universities and other institutions, but to anyone who's not like a child with the seventh grade civics understanding of how politics actually works in modern America, you understand there's all sorts of nominally private institutions and things that basically, if you're being honest, are adjuncts of the state in one form or another. Back to the article, quote, Former President Bill Clinton spoke with Biden in May about how to navigate inflation and the midterm elections, end quote. Oh boy. Bill Clinton's going to tell you what to do about inflation. Bill Clinton didn't have to deal with high inflation when he was president. And as far as Bill Clinton's economic advice, the good economy for much of the Clinton years was, number one, a lot of it was a bubble induced by the Federal Reserve, and number two, the genuine economic growth that did occur in the 90s was largely stuff that had nothing to do with Bill Clinton one way or the other. It was, you know, the internet, the first big internet boom which Bill Clinton just happened to be lucky enough to be president when it happened. He didn't cause it to happen. Now, the most you could say about Clinton in regard to that was like, yeah, he didn't do anything like to completely destroy the first, you know, big internet boom. You know, I guess you could say, but it's not like he's terribly responsible for all of that. And again, there wasn't high inflation in the 90s, so why would Bill Clinton be any sort of an expert on how to deal with high inflation? And on the midterms, uh, my recollection is his first midterm election, Bill Clinton got shellacked and the Republicans took back control of both houses of Congress for the first time in decades. So, I mean, I guess if you're going to ask Bill Clinton how not to do uh, midterm elections, maybe, you know, that's what was happening. I don't know. Seems to me the better thing to ask Bill Clinton about is what was it like flying on Epstein's plane to Epstein's Island, and what are the best ways to whack people who know too much dirt about you and your family? Seems like that's the kind of advice from Bill Clinton that sleepy Uncle Joe Biden would probably most benefit from. Back to the article, quote, These meetings have come as Biden faces the isolation that is endemic to the presidency. A problem that some Democrats say has been worsened by the coronavirus pandemic, which restricted visitors through much of the first year of his presidency, and by the insular quality of Biden's inner circle, made up of staffers who have worked with him for decades. Biden, at these tabletop sessions, often spends hours asking questions and testing assumptions participants say. End quote. Yeah, right. 
I'm sure the guy that can barely make it through a speech standing vertically and definitely can't make it through a speech or a press conference uh, coherently, I'm sure in these private meetings with experts, he's like totally on the ball and, you know, taking notes and asking questions for hours on end. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. The guy who fell off his bike after it was stopped. Right. Oh, the article then goes on for several paragraphs to talk about all the great experts Biden has been consulting with over the last several months in regard to the Russia-Ukraine war. And surprise, surprise, they're all a bunch of neoliberal and neocon Russophobe warhawk NATO expansionists. In other words, he's bringing in a bunch of experts who basically tell him what he already believes, wants to do, and wants to hear. You know, such people as Richard Haas, Ian Bremmer, Fareed Zakaria, retired Admiral James Stavridis, a former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. These sorts of people. Now, here's the thing about a president bringing in experts to give him advice, if this was genuine, if that's actually what was happening and what this was for. Okay, let me put it this way. If I was a president and I was trying to figure out how to deal with some problem or crisis, and I was bringing in experts to give me advice. Number one, I would make sure that the experts came from a variety of backgrounds as individuals, and I would make sure that the experts came from a variety of perspectives and points of view. Like, for example, let's say I was the president and the Russia-Ukraine war happened. Now, setting aside all the things I would have done to try to prevent it that were not done. You know, let's just say I become president somehow, magically, and the war's already happening. And I'm trying to figure out how best to deal with it. Well, first off, in contrast to Biden, my number one goal would be to try and get an end to it as quickly as possible and de-escalate it, the opposite of his goal, which is to drag it out and escalate it. But setting that aside, let's say I was just, you know, completely unsure what to do. Well, I might bring in a panel of experts, either to meet with me all at once or, you know, to meet with me one at a time in succession or whatever. But I would absolutely demand that they come from a variety of points of view and backgrounds as far as expertise goes, meaning I would want to hear from some of the, you know, NATO expansionist hawk russophobes just to hear what they had to say. But I'd also want to hear people from alternative points of view. That's what a competent executive who is actually honestly trying to just get, you know, expert advice and then figure out what's best to do. That's what they would do. Instead, everybody who comes in to advise Biden about what to do in regard to Ukraine is from essentially the same point of view, whether they're nominally Republican or Democrat. They are war hawks. They are military industrial complex cheerleaders and boosters. They are Russophobes. They are big-time NATO expansionists, all those sorts of things. And so no quote-unquote expert is going to be in any serious way challenging what the president, assuming his brain even works at all at this point, what the president actually believes, thinks, wants to do, etc. So in other words, these are completely useless from the point of view of actually getting expert advice to help guide your decision-making. What this is, is bringing in a bunch of people to pander to you, to say the stuff you already want to hear and want to do, and then the compliant lapdog corporate media will go, oh, look at this. 
our enlightened benevolent leader is listening to the experts, why now all the crazy shit he's going to do has the rubber stamp of expert legitimacy on it. That's what these things are. They're bullshit, they're pageantry, ultimately they're a form of propaganda. As Edward Bernays very clearly understood, these sorts of media events and photo ops, if they're properly managed, properly curated and staged, and properly covered by a compliance-friendly media, are very powerful forms of propaganda. That's what these meetings really are. It's not like the president is learning anything new that's going to change what he was going to do on these questions. So, jumping down a few paragraphs in the article, uh, one of the experts they mention is a quote-unquote analyst named Ian Bremer, who's not someone whose name rings a bell with me. I'm sure he's a neo-lib or neocon warhawk of some sort. But anyway, um, the article says, quote, They really wanted outside-the-box thinking of, is there any way that this war, which will be horrible for everyone involved, can be stopped? Can we stop it? How can we stop it? Bremer said. All of my interactions with the White House in the last few years have been uniformly open, constructive, and really wanting to get my best sense of where they're getting it right and where they're not, end quote. Uh, does anybody listening to this actually believe any of that at all? Is there any evidence that the Biden administration ever seriously tried to prevent this war from happening and that once it started, they've done anything serious to try and de-escalate or even stop it? Or has every single thing they've done before the war, like if you were trying to provoke this whole mess and avoid any potential diplomacy to ratchet things down, I mean, what they did is pretty much exactly what you would do. And the same thing once the war was initiated. Everything they've done is what you would do if you were trying to keep it going and even escalate it, not what you would do if you were trying to de-escalate and hopefully end it. Continuing with the article, quote, White House spokesman Andrew Bates said the president, quote, values hearing from a wide range of experts, end quote. Uh, they may be a wide range of experts in terms of things like their race or their gender, and some of them may be Republicans and some of them may be Democrats, but they're not a wide range in terms of their points of view. He's not talking to John Mearsheimer. He's not talking to Douglas McGregor. He's not talking to Scott Ritter. He's not talking to the ghost of George F. Kennan. I have seen no name mentioned on this that has at all of a contrary view on the whole question of Russia, Ukraine, NATO expansion, etc. So there might be little subtle differences between some of these so-called experts, but nothing significant. Back to the article, quote, NSC spokeswoman Adrian Watson said, We are in regular touch with a diverse, bipartisan collection of experts and stakeholders on a variety of topics, including Russia's unprovoked war in Ukraine. End quote. Now, this war in Ukraine, I'm not saying it's justified, but to say it's totally unprovoked is to simply ignore the last eight years of history. Let's just be honest. And again, I'm not saying it's justified. I don't think Putin should have done what he did. If I could wave a magic wand and make his invasion, you know, stop or not have happened or whatever, I would. But to say that it's unprovoked is to ignore at least eight years of history. And I will say, Putin's regime was more provoked into attacking Ukraine than Bush's regime George W. Bush's regime was 
into attacking Iraq. In other words, I'm not saying Putin was justified, but he has more justification to have invaded Ukraine, particularly the Donbass area, than George W. Bush ever had for invading Iraq after 9-11. That's just a fact. So, yeah, the invasion of Iraq in 2003 was more unprovoked and more unjustified than Putin's invasion of Ukraine in 2022. And I'll try to remember to link to a Scott Horton speech where he goes through the backstory of all this. And again, neither I nor Scott are pro-Putin, neither of us are pro, you know, invading Ukraine, Russia invading Ukraine, but this ridiculous childish narrative that the establishment is pushing is just simply divorced from reality and is a carefully cherry-picked, handcrafted, curated narrative designed to lie by omission. To pretend like the history of that entire part of the world started on the day that Putin, you know, invaded Ukraine. And again, a diverse bipartisan collection of experts, yeah, but who broadly share the exact same ideology, whose ideologies line up pretty much perfectly with CNN, CIA, or do I repeat myself, MSNBC, the Biden administration, etc. So anyway, jumping several more paragraphs down into the article to where they finally start talking about this particular meeting of historians again. Quote, The historians Biden has invited to the White House generally take a longer view, placing his presidency in the context of America's path since its founding. Biden, who is 79 and has seen nine presidents up close, starting with Richard M. Nixon, has signaled that he has thought about what makes some presidencies more successful than others. The group that gathered in the White House map room last week was part of a regular effort by presidential historians to brief presidents, a practice that dates at least as far back as the Reagan administration. Obama convened such groups multiple times, though the sessions fell out of favor under Trump. Following a similar meeting with Biden last spring, the August 4th gathering was distinguished by its relatively small size and the focus of the participants on the rise of totalitarianism around the world and the threat to democracy at home. They included Biden's occasional speechwriter, John Meacham, journalist Ann Applebaum, Princeton professor Sean Wilentz, University of Virginia historian Alita Black, and presidential historian Michael Beschloss. White House advisor Anita Dunn and head speechwriter Vinay Reddy also sat at the table. During the discussion, a loud crack of thunder could be heard, which the participants later found out coincided with a lightning strike that killed three people in Lafayette Square across the street from the White House. End quote. I mean, that sucks, you know, it's terrible that that happened to those people, but not sure why in the world that would be mentioned. Seems kind of extraneous, but back to the article, quote, One person familiar with the exchange said the conversation was mostly a way for Biden to hear and think about the larger context in which his tenure is unfolding. He did not make any major pronouncements or discuss his plans for the future. End quote. My question is, was he even awake? Back to the article. Quote, 
A lot of the conversation was about the larger context of the contest between democratic values and institutions and the trends toward autocracy globally, the person said. Most of the experts in attendance have been outspoken in recent months about the threat they see to the American Democratic Project after the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, the continued denial by some Republicans of the 2020 election results, and the efforts of election deniers to seek state office. Applebaum, a contributor to The Atlantic, recently published a book on eroding democratic norms called Twilight of Democracy, the Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. Black, a longtime advisor to former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, was recently named to the board of Vanderbilt University's Project on Unity and American Democracy, which aims to reduce political polarization. Beschloss, a presidential historian who regularly appears on NBC and MSNBC, has recently become more outspoken about what he sees as the need for Biden to battle anti-democratic forces in the country. And then the article quotes Beschloss, saying, I think he has got to talk about the fact that we are all in existential danger of having our democracy and democracies around the world destroyed, end quote. Beschloss said in March on MSNBC before Biden delivered the State of the Union address. Wilentz, prize-winning author of The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, has also voiced similar alarm in recent months about the state of the country. We're on the verge of what Hamilton in The Federalist called government by brute force, Wilentz told The Hill last month, end quote. Now, I would agree we're on the verge of government by brute force, but I would argue it's actually coming from the administration that currently holds power not from the guy who's currently out of power and being harassed by the FBI. And it's not just that the current administration actually holds the power of the American state at the moment. It's the fact that the deep state is on their side in a way they never were with Trump, obviously. And also, the current administration is extremely big on censorship, on propaganda, on coercion, and on characterizing all of their political opponents as essentially domestic terrorists. So you tell me who's actually the one that's the threat to a relatively free society and who's actually the closest to government by brute force. Talk about projection. I mean, all the crazy crap they accuse Trump of is actually something their own side is far more guilty of in reality. Classic projection. Skipping down a few paragraphs where they talk about, oh, this is also similar to World War II. Back to the article, quote, Concerns about anti-democratic trends have long animated Biden, who began his 2020 campaign by arguing that a battle for the soul of the nation was underway, a play on the phrase used by Meacham to title his 2018 book, The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels. Democrats broadly expect the same themes will anger Biden's re-election campaign if he decides to move forward with one, especially if Trump is his opponent again. Biden has continued to bring up such themes in his public speeches, most recently in a July address to a law enforcement group, where he criticized Trump for taking no immediate action as the rioters he had inspired attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, in an effort to overturn the results of the recent presidential election. 
You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-democracy, Biden told the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-American. End quote. And that's the end of the article. And of course, you know, many of you probably already saw that tweet floating around on social media for weeks now. And, you know, this whole idea, you can't be pro-insurrection and pro-American. First off, to say that the January 6th cosplay riot is actually something that should be labeled an insurrection is fucking hilarious. But aside from that, to say that you can't be pro-insurrection and pro-American, what the fuck do you think the American Revolution was? What the fuck do you think the British called it and thought of it as when American people, on their own initiative, as I covered in my series years ago in the American Revolution, when regular grassroots American insurgents started to arm up and prepare against the British government that ruled over them at the time, and then on April 19, 1775, started to literally shoot them, that actually is an insurrection in a way that the silly cosplay riot of January 6, 2021 was not. Okay, go read a book like Paul Revere's Ride. Go read a book like American Insurgents, American Patriots. Go read a book like American Spring. The United States as an independent republic was born out of insurrection by definition. The farmers and shopkeepers who fired the first shots in April of 1775 were insurrectionists. And the guys who, a year and three months later, finally got around to writing and signing the Declaration of Independence, while many of them were late to the Independence Party, technically once they did that, they were insurrectionists too. That's certainly what the British called them, and that's certainly why Ben Franklin quipped after the Declaration was signed, well, gentlemen... We must all hang together, or most assuredly, we will all hang separately. So, as Jerry Seinfeld would put it, who are these people? Who are Michael Beschloss, Alita Black, and Sean Wilentz? Well, Michael Beschloss is the most kind of celebrity historian among them. He's the one that's the most, you know, popular, known to a general audience. And interestingly, he's the one with the least formal credentials in the field of history. Now, I think academia, one of the nearly infinite criticisms I have of academia in its current incarnation anyway, is that there is a rigid Hindu caste system-like emphasis on credentialism. So, I'm not someone who actually believes in this rigid credentialism that somebody's, you know, formal official diplomas and titles and whatever automatically means that they're more knowledgeable or competent about something than someone who might not have uh, as many formal credentials. But I'm judging him by academia's own standards. By academia's own standards, he is not a professional historian. As far as I've been able to dig up, he has no formal degrees in history. He has a bachelor's degree from Williams College in political science, which I'll grant you is very closely related to history, fair enough, but it's not a history degree. And more importantly, he has 
no PhD whatsoever, which neither do I, but again, I'm judging them by academia and the establishment's own standards. He has an MBA degree from Harvard University. He has no degree in history whatsoever, and he has no degree beyond an MBA from Harvard University. And yet he is everywhere referred to as an historian. Technically speaking, and again, I don't believe in rigid credentialism, but they do, the establishment does. Technically speaking, I'm more credentialed in the formal academic sense than this guy. So, from his Wikipedia page, which is pretty extensive because, like I said, he's the most popularly known of these, and he's the only one of these three historians who's, like, constantly featured on corporate media outlets. It says, Michael Beschloss, born November 30th, 1955, is an American historian specializing in the United States presidency. He is the author of nine books on the presidency. Skipping a little bit further down, after it talks about his uh, time as a student in academia, it says, Beschloss has been a frequent contributor on the PBS NewsHour and is the NBC News presidential historian. You can't get much more establishment blue pill propagandist than that. The NBC News official presidential historian. It then goes on to say he is a trustee of the White House Historical Association and the National Archives Foundation. And he also sits on the board of the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. He has been a trustee of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, the Urban Institute, the University of Virginia's Miller Center of Public Affairs, with whom, by the way, Alita Black is also affiliated, as I'll mention in a moment, and the Penn slash Faulkner Foundation. He also sits on the advisory board to the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission and was a member of the President's Commission on White House Fellowships. He has held appointments in history at the Smithsonian Institution as a senior associate member of St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford, a visiting scholar at the Harvard University Russian Research Center, a senior fellow of the Annenberg Foundation, and a Montgomery Fellow and Dorset Fellow at Dartmouth College. Since 2014, he has been chair of the annual Robert F. Kennedy Book Awards. I wonder how he feels about Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s uh, critique of Fauci and the COVID regime, I wonder, as a side note. Beschloss has appeared on The Daily Show, looks like uh, nearly half a dozen times, and was portrayed by Chris Kattan on Saturday Night Live back in 1998 when Saturday Night Live was still funny on occasion. Anyway, a number of other things has won a whole bunch of fancy establishment awards. And his bibliography includes books like Kennedy and Roosevelt, The Uneasy Alliance, Eisenhower, A Centennial Life, The Crisis Years, Kennedy and Khrushchev, The Conquerors, Roosevelt, Truman, and the Destruction of Hitler's Germany, Presidential Courage, Brave Leaders, and How They Changed America. Presidents of War, The Epic Story. And those are not all of the books he's written. He's written a few more I didn't mention. He's also co-authored and edited a few more books in addition to that. And apparently produced a book about or collecting, I guess, transcripts of the Johnson White House tapes. And I haven't looked at that. It would be interesting to see how much of Johnson's many unflattering things that he said on those tapes made it into this book. So this guy is like the ultimate establishment court historian. He also is apparently very friendly with Bill Clinton. In particular, he is married to an Iranian-born uh, wife, whose name I won't try to pronounce. 
And it says here uh, that his wife is president and CEO of the Rock Creek Group, a Washington, D.C. investment firm, former treasurer and chief investment officer of the World Bank, a past trustee of the Ford Foundation, PBS, and the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, and a current trustee of the Rockefeller Foundation, the World Resources Institute, and the Institute for Advanced Study. So again, all these establishment institutions, think tanks, whatever, all of the centerpieces of the more kind of academic, intellectual aspects of propaganda for the regime. It then goes on to say in her personal life, Beschloss and his wife were guests of President and Mrs. Clinton at the White House dinner for British Prime Minister Tony Blair on February 5th, 1998. They also attended the Clinton White House dinner, celebrating the 200th anniversary of the White House on November 9, 2000. They were guests of President George W. Bush and First Lady Laura Bush at the White House dinner for Charles Prince of Wales and Camilla Duchess of Cornwall on November 2, 2005. So there you go. Particularly friendly with the Clintons and also, though, was a guest of George W. Bush, an establishment Republican hack, and in both instances, or in two of those instances, one of the instances with Clinton and one of the instances with Bush, they were also palling around with the British elite as well. And just to give you a sense of some of the commentaries that this guy gives on NBC, where he's the official court, I'm sorry, presidential historian of NBC, on recent events, here's a little montage of some of his thoughts about things that have happened in America over the last, I don't know, year or two. Joining us now, NBC News presidential historian, Michael Beschloss. Michael, we've seen too many of these services, but this one was so meaningful, especially in a time of such stalemate in Congress, to hear all of these speeches, to hear from Tom Daschle, from others who were there in the front row and in the Senate rows, just how bipartisan he was, this fierce partisan, but he worked for compromise. It's almost like looking at Pompeii, Andrea. We're looking at a bygone era that maybe someday will come back, but it's not going to happen anytime very soon. We get to live in a democracy largely because of sacrifices made by Bob Dole as a hero of World War II and others. He gave 80 years of service to the United States, one of the great congressional leaders in American history, and someone who stood for bipartisanship and reaching across the aisle and I guess I have to say it, this is not said in criticism, but as a question. You know, we just heard Lee Greenwood sing. Lee Greenwood sang, called Donald Trump, uh, Trump a patriot and sang at the Trump inaugural festivities. Uh, Bob Dole was loyal to Donald Trump all the way till this year, even after the 6th of January insurrection that almost took down the democracy that Bob Dole fought so hard to preserve. And I guess one of the questions for his historian or biographer who's dealing with the hugely important life of Bob Dole and all of his contributions is going to be why he was willing to stick with Donald Trump, who in so many ways was trashing so much of what he believed in. And what about, Michael, the, the low approval ratings, the, you know, the top issue for voters, the economy, inflation? It's only going to get worse with the sanctions. He's trying to deal with it tonight. He's going to have proposals on energy. He's already announced taking 30 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. But that is a, you know, a drop in the bucket. They can do more. Uh, it's the highest rate of inflation in 40 years. 
So it reminds me a little bit of President Clinton's 1996 address when he was facing a tough situation at home, and he said, the era of big government is over. What He what did, he and say? that helped him. Uh, right. Yeah, sure did. But, you know, 1996 was not 2022 at a time that we were facing a danger to our democracy inside the United States. A lot of people perfectly happy to have an authoritarian government in this country, and it's moving in some places in that direction. And more overwhelmingly, abroad, this, this war in Ukraine, where Ukraine, which had no reason to expect anything like this, is a democracy endangered in a way that we haven't seen in Europe really since World War II. So he comes in at an historic moment. I think if he gives a laundry list like you know, a lot of these other presidents, that'll be a totally missed opportunity. I think he's got to talk tonight about the fact that we are all in existential danger of having our democracy and democracies around the world destroyed, and that there's nothing that illustrates that better than the valiant fight of the Ukrainians that we've been seeing the last few days. America stands up to bullies, and that's what Putin is. He's a bully. Um, and thanks to uh, President Biden's leadership, we were able to bring the world with us. This is a unified effort against a bully. And Michael, that is, this is an historic moment. There are a lot of comparisons to Zelensky, and he's just talked to the president. But this is a big speech on the world stage tonight. And one has to sure hope that Vladimir Putin doesn't try to preempt it in a split screen moment with some hideous attack tonight. Mm -hmm. He might try, and it certainly would be within his lack of character. But go back to 1941, January. Franklin Roosevelt was giving his State of the Union. The Nazis were rolling through Europe. The Imperial Japanese were threatening the world. Many Americans said, we shouldn't stand up to Hitler. We shouldn't get involved in a European war. There were fascists in this country who wanted this to be a fascist authoritarian system because they said only a fascist system could compete with people like Mussolini and Hitler. Roosevelt gave a speech for the four freedoms, said that we may have to fight, and these are the things that we're going to be fighting for. Welcome back to our special coverage of the January 6th committee as it's about to present new evidence about Donald Trump's intense pressure campaign against his own vice president to stop Congress from certifying Joe Biden's Electoral College victory, as required by law on January 6th. I am here with Hallie Jackson and Katie Turr, and joining us now, NBC News presidential historian Michael Beschloss. Michael, I've been wanting to talk to you about a couple of unusual historical precedents, Un obviously unusual because they are presidents, I think. Uh, a president, a president pressuring his vice president to overturn an election that the president of the United States has lost. When did that ever happen before? Uh, we've got plenty of evidence. We're going to hear more today about what you know Trump, Trump said to Mike Pence that morning. But we know what he tweeted and we know that he agreed that hanging Mike Pence was a good idea. Uh, along the way at key moments and also just how unusual it would be to interview and even subpoena the wife of a Supreme Court justice. Well, yeah, uh, we are seeing things, Andrea, that we have never seen before in American history. Uh, as you know, I've got sons who are in their 20s and even people younger. I'm a little bit worried that people who have not lived for a lot of American history who haven't studied it think that this is just a normal thing and just we're looking into the coup that almost, you know, removed the incoming president of the United States, Joe Biden, or a vice president who was being urged to cheat and steal the election and give it to the loser. Well, uh, starting with that one, 
No vice president in American history has ever come close to thinking that he or she could decide who was going to be the president of the United States. That would have been great news for Richard Nixon, who lost in the close election 1960, he would have loved to get up and declare himself the president of the United States instead of John Kennedy. Same thing with Hubert Humphrey, 1968, who was lost to Richard Nixon by 400,000 popular votes. Wouldn't he have loved to say, I really won the election, give the presidency to me? And the same thing even more with Al Gore in the year 2000. So we are seeing something that never happened before in history. Above and beyond that, have we ever seen a president try to wage a coup to overturn an election that he lost? Never, and I hope we never see it again. The other thing you were asking was about Ginny Thomas being called. Yes, we have not seen the spouse, you know, we didn't see the spouse of Earl Warren called by a congressional committee, and that was because Mrs. Earl Warren, his name was Nina, did not send a lot of texts to the executive branch, White House chief of staff, and others in the middle of a coup against democracy. Presidential historian Michael Beschloss, he was among the historians who reportedly met with President Biden last week to discuss the state of democracy. Michael, thanks. Pleasure. Is there any parallel in history to the moment we're in right now? Well, I think everyone would say that this is a time when democracy is in danger in all sorts of ways. And if you had to look at two moments in, in American history where that was also true, one was 1860 when there was a danger of violence and the country terribly divided led to civil war. And then of course in the 1930s when there was mass unemployment, economic dislocation, a lot of dissatisfied people, uh, dictatorial governments in Nazi Germany and Italy and Japan, that was a time that Americans thought that perhaps our, our democracy might be in danger here. So what we've heard from President Biden in recent months is that he feels that this could be a similar moment. So what, Michael, is the valve that releases some of that pressure? That's a really good way of putting it. I think what the valve is that people feel that our system works. And from President Biden's point of view, He's passed a number of laws in the last week and last number of months that address basic issues of climate and economy and taxes. If people feel that a president is accomplishing something, that will help go a long way. You know, there are those who are casting doubt upon the rule of law threats against the FBI and the DOJ. Has the department ever faced this sort of a test before? Not quite like this. And this was something else we saw before the Civil War and in the 1930s. But in the early 1990s, there were threats to American institutions. For instance, there was an attack on the federal building in Oklahoma City in 1995. This kind of thing tends to rise when people are dissatisfied and the country is divided. So you want to reduce it. The best way is for the country somehow to regain that sense of unity that we have gotten throughout American history. We go through these moments, we unify again. I sure hope this is a moment like that. All right. And I tried to put those in chronological order. It's possible I may have screwed them up, but I think in most cases you can probably guess what he's commenting on. He basically gives the most establishment approved blue pilled NPC 
take. It's interesting. He works for NBC, and he's basically putting out the talking points for the NPCs. So, Beschloss is a guy that probably most serious academic historians wouldn't take too seriously. They would look on him probably as being not too different from somebody like Doris Kearns Goodwin, although perhaps even less so, because I think Doris Kearns Goodwin actually does have some formal credentials in academic history. By the way, I'm surprised that Doris Kearns Goodwin wasn't invited to this hoedown with President Biden Lomax. The other two are more formally ensconced in institutional academia. They both have actual PhDs in history, and both have done at least some teaching at the university level in history, and have more of a conventional academic CV overall. But both, I would argue, still function as court historians primarily. Now, I would argue that progressivism, particularly the corporatist, centrist progressivism, the kind that you can trace in a direct line from people like Woodrow Wilson through the FDR administration on down to ultimately people like Barack Obama and the Clintons and so forth. The corporatist centrist progressivism has been the dominant ideology of the American system since at least 1912. It's been the default ideology. And when people who don't fully share that ideology actually end up in power, it's the rare exception and deviation, and usually those people are completely resisted and sandbagged by the kind of permanent establishment. And so interestingly, all three of these people, even though some of their historical work might, particularly with the case of Wilentz, seem a little bit more radical than the kind of centrist corporatist progressive milieu. Nonetheless, when it comes to their takes and comments on modern-day politics, that's what they revert to. So anyway, here's a little bit about Alita Black, and I didn't see a Wikipedia page for her, so I would say she's probably the least kind of famous with a popular or public audience than the other two, or the, the least famous of the three, I should say. I don't think I had ever heard of her before reading uh, the WAPO article I was sharing with you earlier. I definitely had heard of Beschloss and Wilentz. By the way, I don't think I've ever read anything from any of them. I've only, you know, looked at their social media, read their profiles, looked at some of their comments about recent events and whatever. It's possible I may have read something by Will Lentz when I was in graduate school. I definitely remember hearing him mentioned, but I honestly can't recall if I read something that he actually wrote or not. So here's Alita Black's little blurb on the Georgetown University website. It says, Alita M. Black is a distinguished visiting scholar with the Miller Center for the Study of the Presidency at the University of Virginia, a research professor of history and international affairs at George Washington University, and recognized as a leading expert on Eleanor Roosevelt and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. She is a participant in the Initiative for U.S.-China Dialogue on Global Issues Research Group on Women and Society. And then below that bullet pointed, it says, co-director of the Hillary Rodham Clinton Oral History Project and distinguished visiting scholar at the Miller Center for Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. Editor, emeritus and advisory board chair of the Eleanor Roosevelt Papers Project. 
author of the Eleanor Roosevelt Papers, The United Nations Years, 1949 to 1952, Volume 2, and the Eleanor Roosevelt Papers, The United Nations Years, 1945 to 1948, Volume 1. And I don't know why here they listed Volume 2 before Volume 1, I guess because Volume 2 was published more recently. But just to me, it seems like the logical thing to do if you're talking about a two-volume set of books that somebody did that you would mention Volume 1 first and then Volume 2. But anyway. So to be fair, I admit I have not read what this woman has written about Eleanor Roosevelt, but I'm pretty sure that it's probably mostly hagiography, if not entirely hagiography, and that it's just, you know totally positive court historian worship. Again, notice, you know, a historian of the presidency. So that basically, in most cases, there's a few renegades who don't fit this. But in general, most historians who are listed or who describe themselves as a presidential historian, that's a court historian. That's somebody who, for the most part, picks a handful of presidents that they love, usually the most establishment-favored kind of, you know, favored by the center-left corporatist progressive establishment, and then does hagiographies of them. And, you know, maybe it's more academically done, maybe it's less, but it's a hagiography. And then if they do criticize any presidents, it's usually the ones that actually did the least damage, you know, like Warren Harding or somebody like that. And, of course, in modern post-World War II they would primarily just focus on Nixon and Trump as being the lone bad apples, and maybe some of them would throw Reagan in there, although, you know, they, they don't seem to hate him as much as they viscerally hate Trump and uh, Nixon, and they want to pretend like Trump and Nixon were the only people with serious flaws that made it into the White House in the last 70 or 80 years or whatever. So again, as with Beschloss, there's a lot of connections between her and the Clintons, in her case particularly... Hillary Clinton. She seems to be very much a cheerleader of Hillary Clinton. And I looked at her Twitter account, which is not very big. It's actually smaller than mine. And she's got tweets praising Hillary Clinton. And she even has tweets that I saw praising Kamala Harris. So she loves Eleanor Roosevelt, Hillary Clinton, Kamala Harris. It's like, all you have to do is be a progressive female politician and you're just awesome. So yes, we have found one of the 34% of Americans, last time I checked, who actually has a favorable opinion of Vice President Harris. Now, I will switch over to the Wilson Center blurb about this person. The Wilson Center, by the way, yes, is named after that wonderful, excellent president, Woodrow Wilson. Its address is actually 1 Woodrow Wilson Plaza in Washington, D.C., So the Woodrow Wilson Center lists her as Visiting Distinguished Scholar at the Miller Center for the Study of the Presidency, University of Virginia. Full Biography Alita Black, Ph.D., is Special Advisor and Historian to former Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. She's Special Advisor and Historian to Hillary Clinton, okay? And Visiting Distinguished Scholar at the Miller Center for the Study of the Presidency at the University of Virginia. She also advises former Liberian President and Nobel Peace Prize laureate Ellen Johnson Sirleaf on her archive and other projects. I don't know anything about that person, so I have no opinion on the former Liberian president. Although I would guess if Felita Black is a big fan, she's probably someone that I would be at least suspicious of. But who knows? 
a stop clock can be right twice a day, so maybe the former president of Liberia is okay. It's not something I'm interested in enough to look it up. But anyway, in 2019, uh, this is talking about Alita Black again, she began a Hewlett Foundation-funded case study of the bipartisan legislative negotiations to rebuild Lower Manhattan in the aftermath of 9-11. In 2020, she was invited to join Georgetown University's U.S.-China Study Group on Women and Society. She is recognized as an expert on Eleanor Roosevelt and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, has written and edited 10 books, as well as a variety of articles on women, politics, and human rights policy has led workshops around the world on human rights, conflict resolution, and women and girls' empowerment. All right, end quote from the Wilson Center. And, you know, I don't like to comment on people's appearance too much unless it's like, you know, really striking or outlandish in some way or really is kind of stereotypical. But I'll just say about Alita Black that if I told you to picture in your head a boomer, progressive, establishment historian who loves Eleanor Roosevelt Hillary Clinton, and even has some nice things to say about Kamala Harris. And then if you looked up what this woman actually looks like, you'd be like, oh yeah, that checks out. Like, you can't always judge a book by its cover, but sometimes you can. And then there's a little bit more about her on the Miller Center website. So, uh, Fast Facts, it says, historian and advisor to Hillary Rodham Clinton. Managing Director, Allenswood Group, LLC. I don't know what that is, but I'm sure it's some sort of establishment uh, institutional firm. Mentions Advisor to the former Liberian President I mentioned before. Expertise on Eleanor Roosevelt, Human Rights, Women's Rights, Conflict Resolution. Scrolling down a bit, it says, Alita Black is a distinguished visiting scholar at the Miller Center for Public Affairs and an affiliated scholar with Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. She also serves as managing director of the Allenswood Group, LLC. Okay, we get a little bit more on that. A collaborative she founded to preserve and document women's political history and strengthen democracy through education and civic engagement. Black is recognized as a leading expert on Eleanor Roosevelt and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. She has written and edited 10 books, as well as a variety of articles on women, politics, and human rights policy, led workshops around the world on human rights conflict resolution and women's and girls' empowerment, curated exhibits on human rights for presidential libraries and other renowned repositories, and received awards from three universities for her commitment to students and her teaching. Side note, I'm sure she's an absolutely uh, riveting history teacher. I'm sure that without all of her establishment and institutional support, if she was doing something like what I'm doing and just going out there into the free market of ideas and basically trying to attract an audience without all the institutional support and subsidies and the coercive aspects of students being in a university setting where they're being graded, I'm sure without all that, if she just, you know, founded a solo podcast tomorrow, oh, I'm sure she'd be killing it. I'm sure not only would she blow me out of the water, she'd probably blow Dan Carlin out of the water. Anyway, back to her blurbs. In 2022, Heartland Alliance International recognized her leadership with the Robert H. Kirshner Award for Global Activism. 
It then again mentions the former Liberian president she has worked with and says, In 2017, former Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton asked Black to serve as her historian and advise her on her archive, oral history project, and other special initiatives. End quote from the website. So this woman is literally a court historian to Hillary Clinton, like literally works for Hillary Clinton, at least in that one capacity of doing that one project. Obviously, she does her other things for these various universities and institutions. But one of her jobs is literally being Hillary Clinton's like authorized official historian. Anyway, it mentions some other things I've already mentioned from the other websites that talk about her, and then it says, She is a trustee of the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library, an advisor to the Vanderbilt Project on Unity and Democracy, and the National Women's History Museum, and a director of the Campaign School at Yale, the Marjorie Kovler Center for the Survivors of Torture, the Ellen Johnson Sirleaf Foundation, the Kilimanjaro Center for Community Ophthalmology, and the University of Mary Washington. Black received her PhD from the Georgetown University, where she serves as editor emeritus of the Eleanor Roosevelt Papers Project and research professor of history and international affairs. And then a little bit from Sean Wilentz. He is kind of known enough to a somewhat more popular audience. He's sort of in between, I would say. Uh, Beschloss is the most kind of pop historian, and Alita Black is the least, and Wilentz is somewhere in the middle. So, from Wikipedia, Robert Sean Wilentz, born 1951. By the way, these are all boomers. They're all boomers. Both Black and Wilentz are in their early 70s, and Beschloss is the youngest, the spring chicken. He's only in his late 60s. So, there's no diversity among these three on ideology. There's no diversity among these three on their takes on any major current issues. There's no diversity amongst these three on generation. There's also, by the way, as far as I know, no diversity amongst these three whatsoever in regards to kind of ethnicity. As far as I've been able to ascertain, I believe not only are they all white, I'm pretty sure they're all of Jewish background. Now, to be clear, I don't bring that up because I have anything against Jewish people or I believe in any of the crazy Jewish conspiracy theories that are out there or whatever. I'm only pointing that out just as like yet another way in which the president picks three historians to give him advice. Right, and this is an administration and a party that claims to value diversity above all else. Well, there's almost no diversity whatsoever amongst these three people, other than one of them's a woman, and the other two are men. But beyond that, they're Again, as far as I'm aware, they're the same ethnicity, they're the same, you know, skin color, race, whatever. And perhaps most importantly, in terms of advising a president, they're all of the pretty much exact same cookie cutter ideology when it comes to modern day political issues. They all have identical takes on Trump. They all have identical takes on January 6th. They all have identical takes on the Russia-Ukraine war. I'm sure they have identical takes on the economy, and it's probably terrible. It's probably, like most historians, wildly ignorant of of economics. By the way, just as a side note, I'm pretty sure um, that somewhere in one of the clips I looked at, or maybe it was on his Twitter feed, I forget, but Beschloss literally said that the January 6th cosplay riot actually was a serious legitimate threat that, like, almost overthrew the government. Which, you know, if he truly believes that, he's drinking his own Kool-Aid. 
he's drinking his own faction's Kool-Aid. And someone needs to tell him, don't get high on your own propaganda supply. And if he doesn't believe that, he's being a lying, disingenuous propagandist. Anyway, back to Willens. Robert Sean Willens is the George Henry Davis 1886 Professor of American History at Princeton University, where he has taught since 1979. His primary research interests include U.S. social and political history in the 19th and 20th centuries. He has written numerous award-winning books and articles, including most notably The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, which was awarded the Bancroft Prize and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. So yeah, this guy, according to Wikipedia, has a bachelor's degree from Columbia University, a bachelor's degree from Oxford, and a master's and PhD from Yale. So, you know, this guy has overall the most impressive credentials in terms of conventional academia. Bancroft Prize is a big prize in history. He also was apparently a Pulitzer Prize finalist. On his Wikipedia page under scholarship, it says, Willens' historical scholarship has focused on the importance of class and race in the early national period, especially in New York City. Willens has also co-authored books on 19th century religion and working class life. His highly detailed The Rise of American Democracy, Jefferson to Lincoln, won the Bancroft Prize. His goal was to revive the reputation of Andrew Jackson and Jacksonian democracy, which was under attack from the left because of Jackson's support for slavery and pursuit of escaped slaves, and especially his harshness toward Native Americans, including his forced removals of Indian populations from land confiscated by European ancestry populations. Wow, European ancestry populations, that's a really clunky way to say white people. Back to Wikipedia, it says, Willens returned to the pro-Jackson themes of Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who, another establishment court historian, by the way, who in 1946 had hailed the pro-labor policies of northern urban Jacksonians. He has more recently turned his scholarship to modern U.S. history, notably in The Age of Reagan, A History, published in 2008. And it says, Columbia professor Eric Foner, a longtime friend, says Willens, quote, has written some of the very best examples of the avant-garde of the 70s and the avant-garde more recently. Back then, we were trying to recover a lost past or neglected past. More recently, historians have been trying to integrate that vision into a larger vision of American history as a whole, end quote. Oh, and then the last thing it has under scholarship. This is hilarious. While a professor at Princeton, Willens was Elena Kagan's senior thesis advisor. Yes, he was an advisor to Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan. Scrolling down a little bit to politics, Willens has prominently engaged in current political debate. He is reportedly a longtime family friend of the Clintons. Another way... This is me talking now, not Wikipedia. Another way, again, in which all three of these people are as non-diverse as you could get. They're all tight with the Clintons. They're all tight with the Clintons. They're all part of the same kind of DNC political establishment and, you know, the exact same sorts of people that loved the Clintons, still do, and the exact same sorts of people that are basically running most of the Biden administration. 
Anyway, back to Wikipedia, it says of Wilentz, he has appeared in public venues as a staunch defender of Bill and Hillary Clinton. He appeared before the House Judiciary Committee on December 8, 1998, to argue against the Clinton impeachment. He told the House members that if they voted for impeachment but were not convinced Clinton's offenses were impeachable, quote, history will track you down and condemn you for your cravenness, end quote. His testimony cheered Democratic partisans, but was criticized by the New York Times, which lamented his, quote, gratuitously patronizing presentation, end quote, in an editorial. Wow, even the New York Times thought he went a little bit too far in terms of being a bootlicking court historian partisan. Even the New York Times. Wikipedia then goes on to say, in 2006, he wrote an article denouncing the George W. Bush presidency that was titled, The Worst President in History? Which appeared in Rolling Stone magazine. The article received a response from National Review attacking Willens' analysis as blinkered and calling him the modern Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Now, I despise George W. Bush and his presidency, so that's fine. I don't have any problem with that, although... I wouldn't be surprised if Wilentz isn't one of the many, 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 many Democratic Party people who were trashing George W. Bush nonstop while he was president, calling him literally Hitler, who now look at him fondly, or at least fairly fondly, and basically just, well, he's not Trump, and, you know, W's not Trump, and he's criticized Trump, so therefore he's great. The guy who was literally Hitler while he's president is now not Hitler anymore, because now there's a more Hitler Hitler to be scared of. Scrolling down a little bit, this is interesting. He actually was one of the people who in 2008 was attacking Barack Obama on behalf of Hillary Clinton. So it says, in 2008, Willens was an outspoken supporter of Senator Hillary Clinton as the Democratic nominee for presidency. He wrote an essay in The New Republic analyzing Senator Barack Obama's campaign, charging Obama with creating, quote, manipulative illusions, end quote, and quote-unquote distortions, and having, quote, purposefully polluted the primary contest, end quote, with, quote, the most outrageous deployment of racial politics since the Willie Horton ad campaign in 1988, end quote. During the 2008 Democratic National Convention, Willens charged in Newsweek that, quote, liberal intellectuals have largely abdicated their responsibility to provide unblinking and rigorous analysis of Obama. Hardly any prominent liberal thinkers, end quote, have questioned his, quote, rationalizations, end quote, about his relationship to his former pastor, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, or, quote, his patently evasive accounts, end quote, of his, quote, ties, end quote, to the, quote, unrepentant terrorist William Ayers, end quote. So, there's Willens in the 2008 primary season, basically attacking Obama in the same ways that, like, Glenn Beck would have back then. However, I'm sure that if I bothered enough, if I cared enough to bother to look it up, that I could probably find Willens throughout Obama's actual time in the White House doing nothing but praising and defending him because that's how these sorts of people roll. And just to show you what a great guy Willens is, here's a little bit more from Wikipedia. In January 2014, Willens took issue with those involved in the 2013 NSA leaks, in particular Edward Snowden, Glenn Greenwald, and Julian Assange. 
So yes, this guy is an establishment progressive authoritarian in the exact tradition of people like Woodrow Wilson. And of course, that's me talking that last sentence, not Wikipedia. Back to Wikipedia. In Willens's view, quote, the value of some of their revelations does not mean that they deserve the prestige and influence that has been accorded to them. The leakers and their supporters would never hand the state modern surveillance powers, even if they came wrapped in all sorts of rules and regulations that would constrain their abuse. They are right to worry, but wrong, even paranoid, to distrust democratic governments in this way. Surveillance and secrecy will never be attractive features of a democratic government, but they are not inimical to it either. This, the leakers will never understand. End quote. Yeah. It's authoritarianism. It's a surveillance state. But it's democratic authoritarianism and surveillance state, so it's good. This guy, in his comments on modern-day politics, is an absolute modern-day incarnation of the Woodrow Wilsonian authoritarian progressivism that I'm covering in my Wilson series and in my World War I propaganda series. So, stay tuned for more on those. And by the way, all three of these historians constantly use the word democracy. Democracy, 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 democracy. Anything they don't like is a mortal threat to democracy. Anyone who disagrees with them is an enemy of democracy who's threatening to overthrow democracy. And that includes not just Americans, but even international leaders. So, for example, when I was scanning through Sean Wilentz's Twitter timeline, he had a tweet back in uh, April of this year in which he wrote literally, Putin equals sign Trump equals sign Le Pen. But don't take my word for it. Here's Le Pen herself, explicit and proud. And then he's retweeting, I guess, a video excerpt from Marine Le Pen. So he's literally reinforcing this narrative that like Trump and Putin and any other sort of populist, non-progressive leader who's not part of the international kind of World Economic Forum type crowd, or at least approved by them, that anyone who doesn't fit into that category is basically they're all the same, and they're all enemies of democracy. Now, of course, what these people mean by democracy is really important to understand. What they really mean is what Woodrow Wilson talked about as modern democracy. Now, if you haven't already, or if you haven't in a long time, I highly recommend you listen to my DHP episode 207 which was Woodrow Wilson Part 5, and this was the giant multi-hour episode where I went through exhaustively Woodrow Wilson's academic writings. And in there, I dig into what Woodrow Wilson meant when he talked about democracy, which, by the way, is what he thought the end of history was. He thought all nations on Earth were ultimately, in a teleological way, evolving toward this ultimate endpoint that he called modern democracy. And when you go through what it actually is in practice, I would argue it's not even democratic, really. It's actually collectivist oligarchy in which the masses are controlled by political leaders and uh, their corporate cronies. And yes, there are elections, but the people are highly propagandized and manipulated, so they're supposed to just vote for whatever their betters tell them to vote for. And furthermore, because Woodrow Wilson, and you can go back and listen to the earlier episode I did, Woodrow Wilson Part 4, which off the top of my head, I don't remember what episode number that was, where I took apart his essay, The Study of Administration. 
which basically calls for the creation of what today some people would call the deep state, the permanent bureaucracy of the government that is completely firewalled off from elections. The administrative state, in other words. And so I would argue that modern democracy, as Wilson defined it, and as these three historians who were advising Biden, all this is what they all mean when they say democracy. It's not really democratic at all. It's oligarchical collectivism run by political and corporate elites who are, you know, overlapping and are buddies and, you know, are coordinating things. And then back to Wikipedia on Wilentz just a little bit more. In October 2020, Wilentz called U.S. President Donald Trump, quote, the worst president in American history, end quote. Wow, how surprising that that would be his take. And it says he called him that. This is back to Wikipedia for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and political polarization of the country. Oh, yeah, because the other side, the progressive Democrats, they haven't been contributing to polarization either. Right. They only spent, what, three, four years accusing Trump of being a Russian agent. Oh, yeah, that didn't contribute to polarization at all. All of the polarization is coming only from the other side. Everyone knows it doesn't take two to tango, right? Back to Wikipedia, it says, He further wrote that Trump and Attorney General William P. Barr had created the greatest, quote, existential crisis for American democracy, end quote, since the American Civil War through their alleged politicization of the U.S. Department of Justice. Side note, the Biden administration clearly isn't politicizing the Justice Department, right? Back to Wikipedia, and attempted delegitimization of the 2020 presidential election, comparing Trump's ideology to the Confederacy and calling it, quote, a bacillus of racism and authoritarianism, end quote. He also claimed Barr was advancing, quote, an Americanized version of something more akin to Generalissimo Franco's Spain, end quote, and, quote, a theocracy overseen by a president who more closely resembles an elected monarch, end quote. This from a guy who's affiliated with the faction of the American political establishment that advocates censorship. That advocates censorship. But it's the other side who are the authoritarians. Back to Wikipedia. After the 2020 United States Capitol attack, Wilentz predicted that if Trump and the Republican Party returned to power in the 2022 and 2024 elections, they would legally establish, quote, a more or less ironclad system of undemocratic minority rule, end quote, to permanently block liberal policies and end majority democracy, calling them, quote, right-wing Bolsheviks, end quote. He compared Trump to John C. Calhoun and Richard Nixon. Okay, and I'm done with uh, Wikipedia. So, all three of these historians are the most, out, when it comes to their statements on current and recent political events, they are all outlandish, over-the-top ideological propagandists. They're all outlandish partisans. And they all uncritically repeat the most blue-pilled, stupid version of progressivism, right? There are good progressives out there who actually are somewhat independent and will criticize their own faction and their own party and who actually do believe in things like civil liberties and whatever. These are not them. These are the people who are just bootlicking court historians. They are just apologists for power and propagandists for the dominant faction in the American establishment. That's all they are. 
you know, if Biden and the people who are actually really running him, if they really cared about like bringing in people to give him advice, to help him, you know, figure things out, they would have, like I said before, they would have brought in people from a variety of backgrounds and ideological viewpoints if that was really what this meeting was all about. And furthermore, even if they, you know, only wanted to go with people that had serious establishment credentials, they still, yeah, most of them are going to be these blue-pilled people that just say the same dumb NPC stuff over and over. But, you know, you can find some people within the establishment who are at least a little bit independent and a little bit unorthodox on some things. I'll just give you one example. The Scottish-American historian and economist Neil Ferguson. Now, Neil Ferguson is not a guy I agree with on everything, but I think he's right about some things, and I think he's about as independent-minded and kind of heterodox as you can be while still being firmly planted in the establishment. And you can find, I'm sure, some other people that I'm not aware of or that I'm just not thinking of right now who are, you know, at least as outside the NPC box as Ferguson. And so, why not bring in some people like that? Now, personally, I'd want to bring in people who are even more unorthodox and even more outside the establishment than that to advise me. But fair enough, even just taking it for the sake of argument that, yeah, a president like Biden is only going to bring in people with massive establishment cred. Bring in some people like Neil Ferguson. Who are going to have different takes on at least some of the major issues of the day. But no, instead, they're going to stick to the most rigidly doctrinaire court historians. So anyway, I know this episode uh, was often a little bit on the ranty side, but this was one of those, you know, where I didn't have a really detailed outline or script or anything like that, and I just kind of had my points that I wanted to hit and whatever. Oh, by the way, one random thing that I just remembered, speaking of not being super organized and structured on this episode, one funny little thing I forgot to mention about Elita Black is in the bio of her Twitter account, she actually has... The statement, after, you know, she mentions some things about herself, it says, and always grateful for Hillary. Hashtag, I'm still with her. So this is the kind of people we're talking about in this episode. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up in just a minute, but I just wanted to say, um, in terms of some additional kind of announcements, housekeeping, whatever, uh, about the podcast going forward, that the first half of this podcast, I actually recorded a week before I recorded the second half, what I'm about to wrap up right now. And the reason for that slowdown was it's been a lot of work. I expected it to be a significant amount of work, but it's been even more than I thought, kind of overall transitioning. I'm in a transitionary phase from, you know, being conventionally employed to being fully self-employed. And there's all kinds of nuts and bolts things that I'm doing to accomplish that transition. And some of it's stuff I expected and some of it's stuff that, you know, you don't really think about until you are faced with it. But over the past week or so, I've been actually spending a lot of time just trying to get my home office studio fully squared away and organized. And, you know, we moved into this house that we're in basically over eight months ago. We moved like right at the very end of 2021. But because of all the things that happened to me over the course of the spring and into the summer, some of which I've talked about publicly and some of which I haven't. You know, I got to the point end of July, beginning of August, where I was resigning from my job and cleaning all my shit out from there when... I got to that point, I still had not set up my home office studio fully. It was still a disaster. And then, 
And despite the fact that it wasn't squared away yet, now I'm bringing home tons of stuff. You know, I threw out as much as I could, but now I'm bringing home tons of stuff like books, but also just random, you know, office supplies, decorations, posters, like just all kinds of random crap. And now I've got to try and not only just finish finally after eight months setting up my home office studio, but now I've got to do it with a whole bunch of additional shit that I just brought home, you know, a few weeks ago. So anyway, over the course of the past week, I've been spending a lot of time just working on that, and I've made tremendous progress, and I know that I need to get that squared away better before I can really kick it into overdrive as far as productivity of content. So bear with me, it's going to take a little while for my content to ramp up, you know, to much more frequent uh, levels. But right now I'm in the process of unleashing my inner Jordan Peterson to clean up my room. And I know once I've got that, you know, done and everything's organized and whatever, much better than it is now, I'll be way more productive and able to focus on things much more. But anyway, I just wanted to let you know that's one thing I'm dealing with. And also, I just wanted to let everybody know who's listening that... One of the things that's happened because of all the crazy stuff I've been dealing with as far as this transition goes, including the time period when I was actually in the process of still cleaning stuff out from work, is that I'm way behind on things like answering email and social media messages and things like that. And in some cases, I'm probably never going to answer them if they're not, you know, super important, urgent things. So I just want to say, you know, if you've sent me any emails or social media DMs or whatever else like that in recent weeks or, or messages through Patreon or anything like that, please don't take it personally if you don't hear back from me in a timely fashion right now. It's nothing, you know, against you. It's just that I'm really uh, busy with a whole bunch of things, including basic nuts and bolts things like fully setting up my home office studio so I can actually have a good work environment. All right, so just to wrap this up, I want to share with you a passage from a few lines of which are very famous, by the way, from a letter written by the great historian of liberty, Lord Acton, to Bishop Mandel Creighton in 1887. So Lord Acton, if you don't know, is a guy who was kind of a classical liberal historian and intellectual in England in the 19th century, and he's probably most famous for coining the line, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Most people, though, haven't read, like, the entire context of that statement. So it actually comes from this 1887 letter where he's writing to a bishop. And he's talking about his overall approach to history and how he looks at it, and his overall kind of view on powerful people from history. And just preemptively, forgive me, there's a few Latin phrases in there that I may butcher. But anyway, in this letter, Acton is elaborating his view of kind of what the historian ought to be doing and his overall kind of attitude towards people with power. And notice how different this is from the hagiography approach taken by bootlicking establishment court historians. Lord Acton writes, quote, what I have said is not in any way mysterious or esoteric. It appeals to no hidden code. It aims at no secret moral. It supposes nothing and implies nothing but what is universally current and familiar. It is the common, even the vulgar code I appeal to. I cannot accept your canon 
that we are to judge Pope and King unlike other men, with a favorable presumption that they did no wrong. If there is any presumption, it is the other way, against the holders of power, increasing as the power increases. Historic responsibility has to make up for the want of legal responsibility. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority, still more when you superadd the tendency or the certainty of corruption by authority. There is no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. Here are the greatest names coupled with the greatest crimes. You would spare those criminals for some mysterious reason. I would hang them higher than Haman for reasons of quite obvious justice, still more, still higher, for the sake of historical science. Quite frankly, I think there is no greater error. The inflexible integrity of the moral code is, to me, the secret of the authority, the dignity, the utility of history. If we may debase the currency for the sake of genius or success or rank or reputation, we may debase it for the sake of a man's influence, of his religion, of his party, of the good cause which prospers by his credit and suffers by his disgrace. Then, history ceases to be a science, an arbiter of controversy, a guide of the wanderer, the upholder of that moral standard which the powers of earth and religion itself tend constantly to depress. It serves where it ought to reign, and it serves the worst cause better than the purest. My dogma is not the special wickedness of my own spiritual superiors, but the general wickedness of men in authority, of Luther and Zwingli, and Calvin, and Cramner, and Knox, of Mary Stuart and Henry VIII, of Philip II and Elizabeth, of Cromwell and Louis XIV, James and Charles and William, Basuet and Ken. The greatest crime is homicide. The accomplice is no better than the assassin. The theorist is worse. Of killing from private motives or from public, from political or from religious, yadam is ratio. Morally, the worst is the last. The source of crime is pars melior nostri. What ought to save destroys. The sinner is hardened and proof against repentance. Crimes by constituted authorities are worse than crimes by Madame Tussaud's private malefactors. Murder may be done by legal means, by plausible and profitable war, by calumny, as well as by dose or dagger. End quote. Well, when it comes to how to approach history, I'm with Lord Acton and against Beschloss. Black and Wilentz.
Thank you.